Well, around this time of year, it's New Year's time, and January, it's, it's for many a, a time to think about goals and resolutions. I don't know if you're that kind of person. Probably some of you are, some of you aren't. I'm a bit of that kind of person. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of that kind of person all year round, actually. I like to make a plan. I like to have a goal. But I think if we're honest, when we kind of start to think about that, it's also, and this is definitely the case for me, it's exciting but it's also daunting, and if I'm honest, it's exhausting in some ways. Life, in a very real way, is exhausting. And I know that a lot of us feel that. When I mean that, I mean just looking down at, at what is in front of me with my family and this position at the church. I have three daughters, uh, all of whom are in high school at the same time currently. So I have a, a freshman, I have a junior, and I have a senior. And so college discussions are underway, and I know they'll be followed by those discussions with two other people each in the following years, right? It's complicated. It's a, a time of transition. That feels pretty overwhelming, if I'm honest. Uh, there's a ton going on at the church. We're planting a new church in the new year, Door of Hope Northeast, and that's exciting, but it brings a lot of change. It brings a lot of challenge. Uh, there's a lot of growth going on all around the church, and that's exciting, and I love to think about that. I love to try to make plans, and we're definitely doing that right now. But it's also daunting. It's challenging. It's overwhelming when you think about it. And I feel like that's certainly the case for me. It's the case with many of you that I know. And I feel like in general, this may be the most exhausting time, certainly, that I've ever experienced. Just as I look around the world, it just everything seems overwhelming. It's not just our circumstances. It's, it's life itself. The constant demands on our time, expectations, more opportunities than ever probably in the history of the world to compare ourselves to others through the glories of social media, right? It's, it's exhausting when we think about it. And so it's, it's that sense of, of tiredness and overwhelmedness, if that's a word, that, that I want us to think about today as we come to this this pretty familiar text. If you've been around the church for very long, even if you haven't, most people know that Jesus said something like, come to me when you're weary and I will give you rest, right? It's a very well-known passage in Scripture. And that's what we're going to really focus on today uh, at the end of Matthew chapter 11. But I think as we do it, I think we're going to see that, that it might mean something a little different than what we may have assumed it means. And I think it's an important message that really speaks to the heart of this just overwhelmed state of us as people these days. So uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. Just want to give you a tiny bit of background. The Gospel of Matthew is one of the four biographical stories of Jesus, if you didn't know that. And uh, as it traces the story where we come to, it's still kind of in, in Jesus' early ministry. The first big thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Matthew after getting born um, is he, he gives this big uh, set of instruction that was probably compiled from multiple times, but, but you get it in this one big chunk that's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters of a ton of guidelines for actually what it looks like to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Uh, then after that, he calls his first disciples. He kind of roams around in various places, teaching and healing as he goes. And when he comes to chapter 11, he's starting to see this pattern emerge. And that is, regardless of where he goes, when he teaches, when he heals, no matter what he does, most people don't believe what he's saying. And he's starting to get frustrated. He's starting to get frustrated that, that people can see the amazing things that he's doing and, and hear the things that he's teaching and not recognize who he is. 
And that's a lot of what chapter 11 is about. He's, he's talking about that uh, in different ways. And it, it leads to this, this kind of series of three statements at the end, three kind of sections uh, at the end of chapter 11. There's a prayer, uh, there's a big claim, and then there's an invitation. We're going to deal mostly with the invitation, but these, these first two things kind of set the stage for it. So let's look at this first starting in, in chapter 25. It says this, in response to this, this persistent unbelief that's all around Jesus. He says, he, he declares in a prayer, he says, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things. And these things is shorthand for like everything He's been teaching so far. All the things He's been teaching, everything about who He is. He says, I, I thank You, Father. It's kind of a weird prayer. I thank You, Father, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, he's speaking figuratively, not literally. He's not condemning wisdom or knowledge, but what he's speaking against is those who consider themselves very wise, who are full of themselves, who consider themselves more knowledgeable and more wise and more everything than those around them. Those who are, are confident in their own way above all others and who are unteachable. God, it's, it, what Jesus is saying is, is God does not reveal Himself to those. He doesn't reveal Himself to the proud. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to say He hides Himself from the self-righteous, from, from those that are completely full uh, on themselves. He conceals Himself. He keeps Himself secret. But to those who come to Him like little children who are simple and, and humble and teachable and willing to listen, it says He is pleased to reveal Himself. And it says, yes, Father, it was, it was your gracious will, which means good pleasure. It was your good pleasure to do this. I feel like, I think this echoes something that's said later on in the New Testament, in, both in, in James and in 1 Peter. When it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a big theme that you see Old Testament, New Testament, throughout the whole Bible. God opposes the proud. Those who come in total self-sufficiency and self-righteousness to God in different ways, they miss Him. But those who come in humility, not with closed hands, but with open hands, those who have a sense of need are received by God and can come to know Him. And this is what he says. And he follows up this prayer with a, with a powerful claim. In verse 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. It was a, it was a huge claim. It, it, when you read it today, it may not have the, might not have the, the same impact as it did then, but it was a huge claim for those who would have heard this because he's making some significant claims about himself. He's saying, he's saying God the Father, which is their concept of God, is actually his personal Father, meaning that he is God's own Son. And he's saying absolutely everything that belongs to God the Heavenly Father has been handed over to Jesus who is claiming to be God's own Son. It's huge. It's an astonishing claim. There's a common criticism of Christianity that says, says you know, Jesus was a good teacher, but He wasn't God. In fact, He never even claimed to be God. That all came from church tradition uh, much later on. Uh, but but if you read the Gospels, which are all either, either very early or even first-hand biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, he makes multiple claims to his divinity, and this is one of them. 
Uh, one of the commentaries I used is uh, written by a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner. He says, at the heart of the revelation is this simple fact. God's whole truth, absolutely everything, has been placed in and revealed through Jesus the Son. The key to divine revelation is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the key to everything. It's a bold claim. And then he goes on to say, and no one knows the Son. No one knows me, he's saying, except God my Heavenly Father. No one knows me as fully and deeply as God the Heavenly Father. And likewise, no one knows the Heavenly Father the way I know Him as His Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There's some strong words. It's a huge claim. And this is exactly the kind of talk that will get Jesus killed before too long. In John chapter 10, it tells a similar story where Jesus is speaking to a group and He says at the culmination of this, this talk that He's giving, He says, I and the Father are one. Basically, the same thing that He's saying here. And their response is, the whole crowd picks up stones to kill Him. They were going to stone Him on the spot. They were going to throw rocks at Him until He was dead. Jesus says, which of My good works are You going to stone Me for? They say, it's not for your good works. It's because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be God. And He claims that the only way to know God is through Him. And this has always been and always will be incredibly exclusive and deeply offensive. This is another common criticism of Christianity. Like, you guys think you're the only ones that are right. Well, it's not so much that we think, at least we're not supposed to think, that we are right. It's that we think Jesus is right. It's that we believe, if you believe who Jesus is, who He said He is, then you believe that He is the only way to know God, the only source of, of truth spiritually that there is. I would say, if you're not at some point, if that doesn't seem a little bit offensive and exclusive, you probably haven't listened closely. You probably haven't understood what he's saying. Because it is. He's saying he is the only one. And it's also kind of an insult to our intellect and our own powers of our will because what he's saying here is that, that ultimately it's not simply by our will or our mind or our intellect that we come to know God. Those are involved. Our, our mind is involved. Our will. Our, our intellect. But Ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is to know God, the truth has to be revealed to us. And He is the only one who can do it. We, he reveals and then we believe as opposed to the other way around. Well, these are some powerful declarations that He's making. And they lead kind of naturally to where we're going to camp. This is going to be our main focus. To an invitation. He's... he's He's frustrated that folks aren't seeing Him and believing Him. But He's thankful ultimately that that's God's plan. He says He is the only way to know God and now He invites us. He says, beginning with the words that are going to sound familiar, starting in verse 28, He says, come to Me. It's a, it's a very personal invitation. He doesn't say come to God generally, come to a religion, come to a spiritual path. He says, Come to me, a person. And, and it's in keeping with what he just said. No one knows God the Father except through Jesus and who He reveals Him to. So he's saying, come to me. 
Come to me. I want to reveal him to you. But what we see immediately is that this invitation, if it just stopped there, it would be truly for everyone, but it's not. He gives some qualifications. He says, come to me all who labor, who are tired, who are weary, who, and, and who are, are heavy laden, who are burdened, who are struggling to, to bear up under a load, he says. He says, come to me all who are struggling, who are having a hard time, who are overwhelmed. Come to me all for whom life feels exhausting. This is who he invites. And in this invitation, it's the only kind of people that he invites. Jesus invites those who need something, who are aware of their need, who come to him feeling empty and want to be filled rather than the other way around. Those who, who need answers not feel like they already have all of them. Jesus invites all to come to Him who meet this one criteria, and that is need. It's another critique of Christians, right? That we're needy, to which we should say, Amen. Right? Yes. This isn't something that we just kind of add to fill out our life to kind of check off a spirituality box in an already full and robust enrichment uh, kind of list of activities. It's Christians are those who, who feel that, that, that Jesus has the only answers. And apart from Him, it's hard to even make sense of life. We, it, it's a deep relationship of need. And this is what Jesus says. He's, he says, says that need is a prerequisite. Come to me all who are in need, who are weary, who are heavy laden. And he says, and I will give you rest. I will refresh you. I will revive you. One translation I read said, translates this phrase as, as I will set you in quietness. It's a beautiful invitation. I hope even hearing that in the midst of whatever you're wrestling with today, I hope that starts to stir a bit of a bit of hope. But what does it mean? It still seems pretty vague, right? Come to me and I will give you rest. What does that rest look like? How do we receive it from Jesus? Well, he starts to explain, and this is where it gets kind of interesting. Everyone's pretty familiar with this, this first couple statements. Come to me if you're feeling heavy, weighted down, burdened, and I will give you rest. But the way he starts to describe what that rest looks like is pretty interesting. It's, it's kind of shocking. Verse 29, he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, this is an image that, that you probably have some idea of, but isn't nearly as common today as it was back then. I got a sweet picture here for you. That's a yoke, in case you didn't know. A yoke is a farm kind of tool, a farm instrument. It's usually made out of wood. And they can be as simple as a stick laying across two animals' backs, or they can be more fancy like this, where they're really carved. But in essence, it was, it was, a, it was a device to multiply the efforts of livestock, where it would be a heavy load for one. You can redistribute that load across uh, two. It's made to, to distribute the load. Now, Jesus was a carpenter. We know that, that he was raised the son of a carpenter, and Lots of carpenters made yokes in these days. He may very well have made plenty of yokes. It was a familiar image. Probably knew how to make it himself. But, but why does he bring this up? That's the big question. We're starting to get the picture of what it looks like, but, but he just said, I'll give you rest. And now his answer seems to be, 
like a tool for more work. What is he talking about? Like weary, burdened, overwhelmed people don't need a yoke. They need a mattress, right? They need a massage. So you'd be come to me and I will send you on the best vacation you've ever had. Right? That's what we want. That's what we start to, to expect. That's at least what we would hope when, we, when he says, says, hey, if you're feeling overwhelmed, come to me. I'll give you rest. It, it, it seems to imply that, that difficult things stop or at least are reduced and you get, you get rest, right? You can go to the next slide, back to the, the Scripture passage. This is a really important lesson that we're going to really sit with for a while here. It's really easy to believe that rest, and, and at first glance, especially as it's translated in English, it's natural to think that. Rest means the end of work, the beginning of leisure, a change in circumstances. Things get easier. Conflict decreases and good times increase, right? But if that's what we believe that Jesus promises, how are we going to reconcile that with life itself? What is that going to set us up for more times than not? It's going to set us up for unmet expectations, right? Why? Because everybody knows that life is a burden. Life is difficult. We cannot get away from that fact. Jesus' life shows that. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Jesus never promised we would get out of it. In fact, He promised it would be hard. And quite a few places, He promises that over time things would get Harder and more difficult, not better. So what does this mean? What, what is rest? How can you say, come to me for rest and I will give you a yoke. I will give you more work. This is increasingly controversial, I think, in our day because of the increasing popularity of a message that I would call uh, just generally the prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel has some very easy to recognize uh, people who preach it. Uh, the, the, the extreme end of this is pretty clear. It's, it's epitomized and kind of satirized by, by shows like uh, The Righteous Gemstones. Have you ever seen that? Or maybe the, the Instagram account that Josh likes to mention and make fun of occasionally called Preachers with Sneakers that, that catalogs celebrity preachers and their super expensive designer shoes. Um, it, 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 the quintessential examples of televangelists and, and, and huge ministries that promise if you send your money, God will send it back to you tenfold. Those are the, those are the easy to recognize folks that preach a prosperity gospel. But I would suggest today that, that the prosperity gospel has a lot of other forms that are less easy to recognize, that are far more deeply ingrained in, and more prevalent in the church, and if we're not careful, in our own lives and hearts and expectations. Because I think a prosperity gospel is any gospel in which it's preached, if you follow Jesus and follow the rules, your circumstances will change, things will get better, and you'll get what you want. And that is preached a lot more often. You don't have to have your own personal private jet or designer shoes uh, to, to hear that message, right? It's far more prevalent. And in the day of, of Instagram, where we are never, like, like just continuously comparing ourselves to others, it's even more prevalent. 
Instead, Jesus offers something different. The rest that Jesus offers is deeper than prosperity. It's deeper than any particular circumstances you might find yourself in the midst of. What He's saying here by the yoke is that He's promising not a a ceasing of work, not the end of any burden. He's preaching a new way to live. He's preaching new work to do. And that the ultimate result of how He is describing this life will result in rest and refreshment in a continual way. It makes life more sustainable. For those that just feel that life itself is exhausting and it's hard to know how to keep going, Jesus is saying, I'm offering a different way to live that will not be free of burden, but will change the way you carry the burden. He's not promising to make it problem-free or struggle-free, but He's promising to make it sustainable and manageable. And He describes more of what that looks like when He says, he says take My yoke on you and learn from Me. This word learn is closely related to the, the Greek word for, for that's translated as disciple in, in the Gospels. It means to be a follower. It means follow Me. He says, Jesus is saying, take on the yoke of my teaching and follow me. Thus far in the Gospel of Matthew, this is most of what he's been doing. Is he's been, been preaching about and teaching and explaining what it looks like to live this life that he's alluding to. That now he, he describes metaphorically as, as his yoke. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, like don't hold on to anger. It's not just so that there's less conflict. It, it's because ultimately it provides rest. When you don't hold on to anger, it, it frees you from resentment and bitterness, which absolutely suck the life out of you. When he says, says don't give in to, to lust, that's hard in a world full of temptation. But he frees us from the crushing weight of brokenness and sexual immorality. When he says, when you're attacked, don't fight back and seek revenge on your own terms. Instead, metaphorically, if, if they hit you on one cheek, turn the other cheek and offer that to them too. That's really hard to do. That's a burden. It's, it's not that it's no work. But it releases us from the crushing weight of seeking justice on our own terms. In our own way, which the world is obsessed with. When we follow Jesus closely, when we learn from Him, when we become His disciple, what He's saying is, that's where we will find rest. And He says, come to Me. I'm not hard to approach. He says, I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. He says, I won't lord it over you. I won't rub your face in your failures. I won't be self-righteous like those who see themselves as wise and understanding. Which was so many of the religious leaders of that day and, if we're honest, our day too. He says, come to Me and you will find rest, refreshment, revival for your souls. And the Greek word for souls, translated as souls, it's not, it doesn't mean what we often think of as soul, which is like the immaterial, spiritual part of us. The Greek word is psyche. And it means what you'd guess psyche means. It, it, it's, it's the whole of what makes you, you. He's saying, come to Me, learn from Me, follow Me, and you will find deep refreshment in the essence of who you are and the deepest part of your being. Your whole being. And he concludes, for my yoke is easy, which is not, it, it, you know, oftentimes 
Uh, the, the original language word has shades of meaning that the, that the English doesn't. And easy, it's just a, it's too simple of a translation. It's more, the, the Greek word is more like kind and good and, and benevolent. It doesn't mean that it's just not difficult or simple. It means that it's good. And he says, and his burden is light, which means comparatively not as heavy. doesn't mean that it weighs nothing. It means that that when you compare it to what it could be if you were alone in this context, it seems light. There's still burdens, but they become less significant in following Jesus than when we try to do it on our own. It's a beautiful invitation. I want to continue to think about it and, and try to, to, to dig into this to discern more practically what it actually looks like in our lives. And, and, and I have three things I want to share uh, as we reflect on this. And the first one is this. When we're thinking about this yoke, know that the yoke joins us to Jesus. The whole purpose of a yoke is to lighten the load, not make it heavier. When, when you first read this and he says, come to me and I'll give you rest, take my yoke on you, it sounds contradictory. It's like, wait, you, you, you're telling me rest and now you're wanting to put more stuff on my back? I already have plenty of other yokes. I already have plenty of other burdens. Now you want me to put yours on too? That's not what He's saying. Jesus isn't dumping His load on us. He's inviting to join us in His yoke. It's for two. He's inviting us to, to be unified with Him. To be brought closer to Him. To follow Him. To to, to become one with Him. To pull together rather than alone. If life is the burden, it's crushing when we're alone, right? In the same way as hauling a pile of rocks is, is difficult for one ox, but, but when you have two, it's a different story. With Jesus, it's still a weight. He doesn't promise a burden-free existence. It is still a weight. But it's a completely different experience being unified to Him in the midst of us. And that's what He's offering. That's what He's inviting. Come be with Me. Be one with Me. So the yoke, the yoke joins us to Jesus. And then talking a little bit more deeply about His rest. It's important to realize, and I think you're kind of getting the sense of this, that the rest that Jesus is talking about, it's more inward than outward. It's more internal than external. And if we consider how Jesus modeled this in His own life, I think it becomes clear it, it can't be external. Because if you just think about Jesus' life, it wasn't very restful. He had conflict from the beginning of His teaching ministry. His mother and His brothers don't believe in Him, try to take Him by force in the middle of His ministry because they think He's out of His mind. His disciples who are with Him more than anyone else following Him around and everything, they don't believe in what He's saying. They don't understand what He's saying. They abandon Him when He needed them most. One of them betrays Him for money. He's rejected by Jewish leaders who should have recognized Him and worshipped Him. He's executed horribly. He's prophetically, by the prophet Isaiah, called a man of sorrows. He experiences profound loneliness, rejection, abandonment, and pain in a deeper way than any human being ever will before or after because he had more to lose than any other human being. It doesn't sound very restful. 
if we look at it from an outward, external perspective. But Jesus' rest was not based on His external circumstances. It was based more on His internal relationship to His heavenly Father. There's a 19th century Scottish preacher named Henry Drummond uh, that Josh gave me a little book of that, that talks about this. This is a quote. He says, Christ's life outwardly was one of the most troubled lives that was ever lived. But the inner life was a sea of glass. The great calm was always there. At any moment, you might have gone to Him and found rest. There was nothing that the world could do to Him that could ruffle the surface of His Spirit. That's what He offers us. A, a supernatural inward rest and refreshment that endures even in the midst of extremely difficult and weighty things. And this is exactly what Paul uh, speaks uh, later of in, in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he even uses some of the same words that Jesus is, almost to the point where it makes you wonder if he was inspired by the, these very sayings of Jesus. He says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 8, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart, though our outer, we're talking about here, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. And this word for being renewed is, is closely related to the, Jesus, the, to the word that Jesus is using for rest. Our, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, the same word that Jesus uses when He says, says uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the kind of rest that Jesus offers to us. Not necessarily an outward change in circumstances, but an inward rest and refreshment that can be there even in the worst of circumstances. That's what we see modeled in Jesus' life. And that's what He asks and invites us to come to Him and be unified with Him and receive the same kind of thing from Him. And then third and last, I want to talk about how Jesus shows us what this actually looks like. Because all this is still kind of pretty big ideas, right? And some of you are more idea folks, but I know that there's plenty of practical folk out there that are saying, all right, this is cool, this is great, but what am I going to do, right? Well, it's not always just about doing, it's about being and it's about doing, but I think there are some practical things that we can consider when we look at, at how Jesus modeled the example that He gave for what rest looked like in His life. And these are not rocket science, these are not complicated, they're, they're hard, they're difficult, they're not easy, but they're not complicated. First, Spend a lot of time in prayer, right? That's what I'm saying. 
You're, you're gonna, these are, all three of these are going to be straight up Sunday school answers, at least Door of Hope Sunday school answers. Uh, Luke 5, verse 16 says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was a regular thing for him. He constantly pursued God, his heavenly Father, through relationship in prayer and conversation. So it's probably going to look like that for us. It's going to look like prayer. It's also going to look like spending time in the Scriptures. Again, Sunday school straight up, right? Even though Jesus inspired the Scriptures themselves, He still immersed himself. He still immersed Himself in them even from a very young age. You get this, this scene with Jesus when He's 12 years old and you see Him already having enough Scripture knowledge to sit with the teachers of the Old Testament Scriptures and, and actually teach them and debate big ideas with them at 12. The Scriptures guided everything He did. They constantly guided what He said. He's constantly quoting them and it should be the same with us. You never outgrow your need to spend time in God's Word. You never get enough knowledge to where you need to move on to something else. Not saying that there's no other, there's certainly value in reading other devotionals and other kinds of books and that kind of thing. But they're not the Bible. They're not the Scriptures. They're not the inspired Word of God. So it's going to involve prayer. It's going to involve time in God's Word. If we're going to learn from Him, be His disciples and follow His teaching, we're going to have to spend time in it. And thirdly, this is the Door of Hope Sunday School answer, it's going to involve community, right? It's going to involve other people speaking into our lives. Besides his early mornings and late nights in prayer by himself, you're hard-pressed to ever see Jesus by himself. He's just always around people. And you might give the classic Sunday school answer to that like, oh yeah, but he was Jesus and he had the like disciples. Well, just read the Gospels. These are not awesome guys. It was not, his community group was a lot like yours, right? <laughs> It, 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 these guys were a mess. They didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't really believe half the time. They defied him. They failed him. They frustrated him at times. Just like your community does, right? There's no perfect community, and yet God's path is always with people. It's never a solo mission. It's not complicated, but this does take effort and intentionality. And to kind of bring it full circle around to where we started, we're in this new year, we're thinking about goals, we're thinking about resolutions and that kind of a thing. If, if prayer, conversation with God, time with His people and time in His Word, if these things don't have a serious place in your life in the coming year, it shouldn't be a shocker if you start to feel exhausted. These things go together. And it's not, you know, it's easy to push back on that and be like, oh man, what are you saying? Are you saying step one, step two, step three, and that's how you get what you want? Again, that sounds like the prosperity gospel you were just talking about. It's not that. And yet, even Jesus Himself, these were the rhythms of His life. It's not, it's not tasks you do to please God, and when you don't read your Bible, He's frowny face, and then when you do, He's smiley face again, and it's all good, right? It's not like that. He loves you regardless. But the way in which we walk closely with Him and learn from Him comes through these things. And if they don't occupy some time in your day, 
some place in your calendar, then life is going to seem to crush you. Maybe more or less, depending on the given time, depending on the season or whatever, but eventually it's going to feel exhausting. And if, if these things don't have a place in your life, then I think that that probably means is that you're going to some other source of rest and refreshment. And what is that? You're starting to look to some kind of, some aspect of lower C, lowercase c creation. You're going to that for something that only the capital C creator can offer. Now, I'm not saying that, that the only source of rest in your life should be prayer and scripture and community group, otherwise you're in sin. Like, I like a good meal, I like a good beverage, I like a good show. I even like a football game sometimes. I know I'm in the minority of this church, but that's cool. Um, uh, go Hawks. Um, and you see, like in Seattle, that, that would have gotten a different response, but that's okay. Um, but if these things start to become more deeply satisfying and more deeply refreshing than our Creator, then we're starting to ask of created things something that they cannot provide, that they were never meant to do. God graciously gives us things to enjoy in creation, and we're supposed to enjoy them as good gifts from the Creator, acknowledging that that's where they're from, but when the gifts become the God, then everything gets twisted, and it gets distorted, and, and things get messy. So whatever your goals are, whatever your plans are, whatever your thoughts are, and and aspirations are for this year, I want to encourage you to make these things a priority because this is how we practically pursue rest in God, walking closely with Jesus. And that's His invitation to us. To everyone for whom life has become a grind, whom existence is laborious, to the overwhelmed, to the exhausted, to those who don't know how much gas is left in the tank who feel the crushing weight of expectation as they look towards the new year. To all those, Jesus says, come to me. And, and he doesn't just offer this freely. Actually, it came at a price. Because Jesus actually took everything that separated us from him. Because, because when we when we look to creation for, uh, for things that only the Creator can provide, it's called sin. It's called idolatry. These things separate us from God. And this is what Jesus died for. He died for every misplaced affection, every misplaced object of worship, everything that we desired more deeply than Him, every way that we were full of ourselves and unteachable and came to Him with hands full already as if we had something to offer Him. All of that pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency is what Jesus actually took onto Himself when He died for us on the cross. And he took that to the grave with him, and then he rose from death itself, conquering everything that separated us from God to make this rest possible. And we enjoy that in a limited way in this life. We, we enjoy his rest and his refreshment, but then ultimately we will enter into perfect rest and perfect refreshment with him when he returns, and we're with him for all eternity. And that's what He invites us to. He invites us 
to rest. And there's no one here that is not in need of that. I need it. I desperately know that I need it. Just like I said at the beginning, I like a plan. My wife and I even went on a, on a marriage planning retreat over the holiday break. How nerdy is that, guys? Uh, it, was, it was something that was recommended at a marriage seminar that we did about a year ago, and, and uh, so we did it. But we did our own kind of Portland way of doing it, and we did it in combination with wine tasting. So we kind of go to a winery and take some sips and, and answer some questions, and then go to another winery, and productivity trailed off. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> over the course of the day, but... But as much as I like to make a plan, as much as it reassures me and comforts me that, that maybe things won't all fall apart, I still feel the weight, you know? The church is full of things. My family's full of needs. It's exhausting. And I know that if I don't constantly come to Jesus in prayer, in His Word, being vulnerable with His people, the weight of life, the weight of ministry, the weight of will be crushing. And I've been there many times before. I've been there when it's felt sustainable and I've been there in times when it's felt like a crushing load. And wherever you're at between those two, the answer is the same for all of us. It's Jesus' invitation. Come to Me. Come to Me. If you already know Him, the invitation is to follow Him more closely. And if you don't, it's an invitation to begin that relationship today. And I want to close with a a prayer from Augustine. He was, a, he was a church leader in the, I think, the 300s in the early church. And, and he wrote a, a, a profoundly influential book that's influenced the church in a, a dramatic way ever since called Confessions. He's kind of one of the first journalers, if you will. And right at the beginning of his book, this is some of the, the very first words that he says to introduce this, which I think is a fitting prayer. He says, you are mighty, Master, and to be praised with a powerful voice. Great is your goodness, and of your wisdom there can be no reckoning. Yet to praise you is the desire of a human being who in some part, who is some part of what you created. A human hauling his deathliness in a circle. Hauling in a circle the evidence of his sin and the evidence that you stand against the arrogant. But still immortal, a given portion of your creation longs to extol you. In yourself you rouse us, giving us delight in glorifying you because you made us with yourself as our goal. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you.